the science has been crystal clear. How dare you continue to look away and come here saying that you are doing enough when the politics and solutions needed are still nowhere in sight. You say you hear us and that you understand the urgency. But no matter how sad and angry I am, I do not want to believe that. Because if you really understood the situation and still kept on failing to act, then you would be evil and that I refuse to believe. Welcome to the third episode of Temperature Check with Shrey, a City Renewables podcast. This is your host Shreyansh with your co-host Brian and our guest Rituraj Fukan. Raj is the National Coordinator for Biodiversity at the Climate Reality Project in India. He is the Secretary General of Green Guard Nature Organization and is also a member at the IUCN. Throughout his entire life, Raj has written extensively about the environment and has personally experienced his climate change in the Arctic and Antarctica. He has worked extensively on the interconnected issues of warming, water, and wildlife across India and has shared his learnings with audiences from everywhere around the world. So welcome Raj to the show and I'm, I'm so happy to have you here to finally get you speaking about climate change and how it impacts several thousand people or, or, or a hundred thousand people in uh, Assam, the part of India where you originally hail from. And really, I would just like you to introduce yourself a little bit and just describe what climate change really looks like. Uh, thank you, Shri and uh, Brian. Uh, well, Assam is in the northeast of uh, India, and uh, I think it's uh, one of the early climate-impacted regions in the world. And uh, I, I grew up in the middle of a civil war-like situation with uh, people uh, leading a movement against the influx of uh, refugees. Uh, it was not a very happy childhood and uh, uh, because I lost a few years of education and I used to wonder why people would uh, want to leave their own uh, lands and you know come into a different country and cause trouble. Uh, of course uh, much later I came to realize that this uh, people actually abandoned their um, you know home country because the land became uh, either uh, too salty because of uh, the seawater or uh, they had to just abandon it completely and uh, uh, seek uh, new pastures and uh, not only that Assam also has seen increased intensity of floods and erosion uh, and all kinds of societal conflicts because of displaced people loss of livelihood uh, and even uh, human wildlife conflicts and uh, in recent years all all this has been documented for but for a long long time nobody connected all these events with uh, climate change but the, now the conversation is changing and uh, people are realized that uh, many of these conditions have been aggravated due to uh, warming impacts that have been uh, quite well documented right now and raj one qu- and one question i have for you real quick raj is when when you when you when you start to notice you look back in time when you know people are starting to flee where they're from due to climate change did they know at that time that it was related to climate change or did they just recognize hey the the sea levels coming up and we got to get out of here when was the that kind of switch in people's mindsets to understand that hey this may actually be due to you know our impact on the environment 
I think that thinking has only come in the last decade or so, but uh, this shifting of people has been happening slowly over the last, uh, at least over the last uh, four to five decades. And uh, it's not just, uh, you know, the sea level rise, but uh, uh, the salinization that's taking place uh, because of which, uh, you know, the land becomes uh, uncultivable. And, uh, and all these interconnections are, were not, never understood before. Now that climate change is there in the media, people are talking about it, politicians have started to talk about it. Uh, now people are making the connections, okay, there may be uh, sea level rise because of, uh, you know, melting in the polar regions. So slowly now they are connecting that, uh, you know, what had happened back in time, you know, 44, five decades back, it's a whole long drawn out process and it's continuing till right. now. So, so Raj, I just wanted to ask a real quick question. What country are we talking about again? Like, what country are the refugees coming from? Bangladesh, uh, because it's, uh, it's so low-lying and uh, it's the most uh, vulnerable country uh, to sea level rise. And uh, it is, you know, when we talk about sea level rise, it's not just that, you know, they have to abandon the land because the water uh, has inundated the place. Even if there is uh, water coming in and going out, because it's salt water, the land, uh, you know, the cultivable land becomes uh, unsuitable because of the uh, accumulation of salt. So that salinization also forces people to abandon their agricultural fields and uh, move into towns and cities. And, uh, and Bangladesh being right. such a populated country, densely populated country, people uh, tend to come across a very porous border and, uh, you know, migrate to different parts of India. Right. So uh, as far as I can guess, it, it's not just an emergency that makes people move from the country, but it's also a long term economic consequence of climate change that, you know, hurts their agricultural economy and that pushes them out of their country. Right. Yes. Uh, loss of livelihoods, agricultural lands uh, uh, and, uh, you know, even employment opportunities. These are all interconnected. Yeah, that forces people right. to migrate. So uh, moving in that direction, I just wanted to ask, is there like one particular instance of like, you know, the salinization or flooding or a large influx of refugees from Bangladesh that you particularly remember? And that was like probably the most horrifying of all the incidences that you have seen in Assam over the years. Yeah, this immigration uh, into Assam and other parts of India has been happening slowly. Uh, it's not uh, like uh, the sea level has risen suddenly and there has been a huge influx of people, but it has happened uh, slowly over time and people have continued to move away, abandon their uh, homelands, agricultural fields, uh, uh, and then, you know, infiltrate into India. Uh, and into my uh, region in Assam, and uh, and this consequences. One of the things that I remember was uh, this uh, student-led movement in Assam, which quickly turned uh, uh, violent in the 1980s, and uh, particularly in the year 1983, there were large-scale uh, large massacres of people uh, because of uh, conflicts between immigrants and uh, the indigenous inhabitants. Uh, so those at that time nobody was connecting uh, these with uh, uh, climate change because people were already been displaced from their lands but uh, at that time uh, people were not really uh, connecting it 
to sea level rise as such or salinization but now we know better uh, because there have been so many studies and uh, all this has been taking place uh, ever since the industrial revolution actually so climate change story is not just of the last 10 years or 20 years when it has come into the uh, conversation but it's been something that's been happening at least for the last 70 80 years Right. So as far as I know a little bit about Assam, Assam is a state that's also like devastated each year because of climate change and the flooding it causes in the Brahmaputra River. Uh, and, and that again has a link to climate change. Can you elaborate more on that? I mean, I guess this year I heard uh, somewhere around, I don't know, these figures might be wrong, but 60,000 or 600,000 people were displaced by Brahmaputra River floods. And now it's not natural, but it's, it's, it's a climate change caused event. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, so Assam has always been prone to flooding from the Brahmaputra and uh, even during our childhood we used to have at least, uh, at least two waves of uh, flooding every year. But uh, now that intensity and the frequency of flooding has increased and uh, very uh, quickly I can explain that about 30% of the flow of the Brahmaputra is from glacial meltwater. We are in the eastern Himalayas, uh, you know, where the river originates from the Tibetan Plateau and then through the eastern, eastern Himalayas and into the plains of Assam. So, with uh, with the accelerated melting of uh, the glaciers, there is an increase the flow volume, uh, which causes the uh, erosion in in the riverbank and uh, leads to floods, and you know, the people are displaced. Uh, combined with that, there also has been change in the rainfall pattern. So this precipitation pattern change uh, uh, actually uh, has also added to the problem of floods and erosion. Uh, there are other reasons like uh, massive deforestation up up in the hills in Arunachal and neighboring uh, you know other neighboring states, which uh, causes uh, a lot of water to rush down rather than percolate into uh, into the ground as they would in the past. So yes, climate change is aggravating these situations and uh, with the, the projections that we have uh, saying that uh, about 40% of the glaciers will be lost in the next 20 years and up to 95% would be lost if uh, warming continues at the rate we are on by 2100. I think uh, we are going to see a long drawn spell out of uh, worse floods and uh, erosion, loss of livelihoods and displaced people. Right. So do we have like some sort of figure on, I don't know what the the fatality or like displacement of people from their homes in Assam has been like this year or the last year or maybe within the decade? Uh, we, we have... Uh, fatalities in terms of uh, I, I cannot tell you uh, the exact numbers but uh, over a hundred people die every year uh, due to floods at least in during the last uh, decade or so and uh, the numbers are on the uh, higher side each year and uh, at the same time the number of people who are displaced uh, who, who lose their homes every year uh, run into tens of thousands uh, and uh, about uh, at certain times, uh, about you know, uh, up to uh, about three hundred thousand people are displaced. Wow, that's that's a big number. 
So what has been the attitude in, in Assam and in India at large as far as climate change is concerned, especially over the last couple of years? I, I know Assam is big on oil. Uh, it's one of the places where, you know, oil is found in India and they're fracking oil. What, what does that look like? Uh, well, uh, the big boy, the city of big boy in Assam wa was where oil was first uh, discovered in, in the entire continent of Asia. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, entire Brahmaputra Valley is one of the leading producers of uh, oil in India. And uh, we don't have much of uh, fracking here, but uh, yeah, oil and uh, the economy of Assam is very much uh, intertwined and uh, I would say along with tea and uh, coal oil again is one of the major contributors to to development of this region uh, when we talk about uh, what people uh, think about climate change around the country whether people are li uh, living in the urban areas or uh, the rural areas, I think everybody understands that our world is changing. Uh, they may not know why, uh, but uh, they would definitely tell you the seasons are changing, the climate is changing. They may not connect it to uh, the emission of greenhouse gases, especially in the rural areas. Uh, but in the urban areas, it is pretty clear that, uh, uh, you know, especially the younger generations, they are very much attuned uh, with uh, what is happening in the climate change front. Uh, having said that, uh, there is very little understanding of the interconnections between, say, increased uh, human wildlife conflicts uh, or biodiversity loss or even the uh, most uh, uh, visible manifestation uh, of climate change in India, that is the water crisis. Uh, so these interconnectivities are lost, especially to people who are in the rural areas, and that is understandable because people are uh, not very educated, and uh, many of them uh, do not have uh, the time or the inclination to actually find out why, uh, because they are so much engaged in sustaining their very uh, marginal uh, livelihoods. Are you noticing, um, is there any solar power you know being generated there is there any wind turbines is there any sort of renewable energy initiative going on oh yes uh, in many parts of india solar and wind are taking off in a big way and uh, in fact uh, india is of course one of the initiators of the international solar alliance right and uh, and uh, a lot of effort has been put into uh, you know increase uh, our capacity and the government has made the huge commitments and in fact uh, uh, taken up uh, measures to uh, you know multiply the generation of uh, solar and wind power uh, however it has not uh, reached all parts of the uh, country and uh, especially where i live in northeast india because it's uh, very much rainfall prone it's hilly and many times covered in uh, you know with a cloud cover or covered in mist and fog. Uh, maybe that's probably one of the reasons why it has not made uh, made inroads into this region as much as uh, the rest of India. But uh, solar and wind are uh, taking off in a big way in many states, uh, especially Gujarat, Andhra Pradesh, Telangana, to name a few. Uh, 
uh, and uh, the capacity of India's renewable energies uh, generation is uh, multiplying uh, in, 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 you know, tremendously. In fact, it's one of the leading uh, uh, positive trends we see in the entire world. And are you, are you noticing, because here sometimes we have like, you know, our gas companies um, are trying to get involved in renewable energy as well. Are you seeing, um, are you seeing oil companies uh, investing in that as well to kind of, you know, have multiple um, ways of producing energy on their platform? Or is that just separate companies making an impact? Uh, in India, the oil sector is a public sector, right? It's a, it's a you know, partly go- government and partly, you know, self-managed. Uh, uh, Whereas uh, most of the solar uh, companies, the new companies that are into renewable energies we see now are uh, mostly private enterprise. And uh, yeah, and if there is any efforts on uh, by these oil companies, uh, it's uh, not very visible. Right. So, so you know, I just wanted to touch a little bit more on that. I, I mean, you describe this tale, the story of Assam and what's going on in Assam and the fact that people in Assam are recognizing now that, you know, climate change is a cause of immigration to refugee crises to flooding to, you know, the environmental degradation that they are witnessing in the state. And then you also said that oil was also big in Assam. Are they now connecting these dots together and probably thinking that, you know, the original idea that led them to believe oil was the way to prosperity, are they questioning that? What what does that look like? Well, uh, a great question, and especially at a time when uh, people's uh, uh, focus in Assam is on uh, what is India's uh, longest burning oil well uh, incident. Uh, about three months back, we had this oil well blowout at uh, a place called Bagzan, uh, not very far from where oil was first discovered in Digboy. And it is still burning. And we have had a few loss of lives, uh, unfortunately, uh, due to accidents at that site. And uh, and with that, a lot of other things have come out uh, regarding how uh, permissions have been g- uh, given t- for uh, oil explora- uh, exploration and drilling in areas uh, near national parks and uh, you know areas which are considered to be ecologically sensitive. And uh, people are questioning, especially uh, a lot of people in, in Assam and, and the entire Northeast for that reason are very connected uh, closely connected to nature. Our art and culture uh, reflects that and, uh, uh, and you know, people are really proud of their natural heritage and the vast amount of biodiversity we have in this region. And uh, now that uh, people realize that this is going to actually endanger, threaten and even probably wipe out uh, biodiversity in the long run uh, and it is not sustainable, uh, you know, people are questioning it. It's not the four or five thousand jobs that matter, but the long-term sustainability, the the long-term uh, impact on the biodiversity, the natural heritage of the region. Uh, it, and it is not just oil. I, I would like to give an example uh, about coal mining in the Dehing Patkai region, which was in the news again in the last uh, six months or so. Uh, you know, coal mining is taking place very close to the rainforest and incredibly uh, with with 60 70 years of coal mining 
the groundwater levels in some of the villages near these mines uh, have totally uh, collapsed and there is no drinking water available in that area. There's no water at all, right? And uh, to think right. that it is close to a rainforest, which is supposed to be one of the most, uh, uh, you know, naturally endowed, uh, you know, uh, regions, uh, areas in the entire world, and so biodiversity rich. And what has what has evolved for millennia has been destroyed in just 60, 70 years of uh, mining. So people are questioning that now. You know, is it worth it? Right. So I, I wanted to connect this a little bit with your personal experience in the Arctic and, and, and Antarctica. I, I, I know you've been to those places and you've seen what climate change looks like in those parts of the world. Can you, can you narrate what happened when you were in, in the poles and what you saw and how that opened your eyes to what was going on in Assam? Yeah, sure, Shrey. I'm glad that you brought it up because uh, uh, in 2013, when I went on the uh, Antarctic expedition, and uh, one morning at 6 a.m. Uh, in the you know very very uh, bone bone sh uh, shattering cold, uh, we were summoned up to the deck at uh, a place called Antarctic Sound, and. Uh, and that area was full of huge uh, tabular icebergs. And uh, I learned that those were the remains of the Larsen B ice shelf, which had collapsed uh, uh, about 11 years earlier. And uh, uh, pointing uh, those to us, our team leader, Robert Swan, who by the way is, uh, is the first man to have walked to both the poles, uh, you know, he, he was just saying like in 2002, a lot of people did not believe in climate change. But what you are seeing now are uh, what was one of the first, uh, uh, you know, examples of how it's going to affect the polar regions. And some the Larsen B ice shelf, which was geologically stable for like tens of thousands of years and then and then started to crack. And scientists predicted that this would actually take maybe months and years to uh, you know, uh, disintegrate. But once uh, the cracks uh, were noticed within uh, about four weeks or so, the entire ice shelf uh, actually uh, broke away. And uh, so it was an example of how fast things can uh, deteriorate. And uh, uh, so that kind of reminded me of uh, my uh, childhood and all, all that uh, trouble from displaced people. And because uh, he also pointed out that uh, low-lying areas like Bangladesh will be flooded and the people would have nowhere else to go but, uh, you know, uh, migrate to other places. And so I made that suddenly a, that was a light bulb moment for me. So I made that connection between uh, climate change, sea level rise and all, all the troubles that we are seeing in different parts of the world. And actually, I became a climate activist uh, because of that. And, uh, uh, and that was where I first did my, uh, you know, activism on climate change by supporting uh, the Pacific warrior nations on March the 2nd, 2013, when they had this day of action uh, with 350.org. Uh, yeah, so that's about the Antarctic uh, expedition which shaped my activism. 
And and so I, I wanted to narrate this with the broader picture of India, like real quick. I, I know you said, you know, water as a scarcity is a big problem in India. And one of the uh, eminent, uh, like one of the eminent, uh, how do I say that? Um, you know, really one of the most prominent uh, scenarios, which, which it's a climate scenario that's like really visible. Uh, you know, and and then there is coal that's that's really big in India. Out of this experience in in uh, you know the poles, have you tried extrapolating these and you know using them in your message to the larger audience and public in India, saying that you know this is what you learned. Climate change is a leading cause of these things, and we need a revolution in the ways we utilize energy and in the ways we util we generate energy have have you really used this message that you learned from your polar experience in the in the in the broader message that you really spread in india and around the world yeah uh, i i have a i always say that uh, water is the local issue of global climate change uh, for people and for biodiversity and uh, many of my presentations are themed around that and sometimes I call it connecting the three W's warming water and uh, wildlife and uh, having said that what happens in the in the polar regions in fact uh, the Arctic sea ice uh, melting for example can uh, uh, and is already disrupting the South Asian monsoons uh, aggravating the water problem that we are facing across the country and uh, these uh, because water is such an important issue everybody needs water and if we start talking to people whether it's a politician or an industrialist or a or a city dweller or a uh, illiterate uh, villager if we start talking about water they listen because everybody needs water and everybody knows about the water uh, crisis about how water is becoming less and less uh, available for them and uh, and to follow that up with uh, climate change impacts and the need for a transition to a, a you know clean energy based economy uh, i think that makes sense to a lot of people and i definitely use that a lot during my communications i'm curious um, in your findings you clearly are very involved what we hear on our podcast so far from other activists is that we're not even close to making a difference yet. Um, we still have a long way to go. Uh, we have to reverse, um, you know, reverse issues that we have been, per, you know, causing ourselves for, you know, for decades. So I'm curious of your opinion, you know, is are you optimistic that we can get clean fast enough or you know is it just doom and gloom well uh, i am i am a eternal optimist and uh, my optimism comes from uh, uh, seeing the enthusiasm seeing the the passion of the youth of the world uh, and how the how they are uh, you know spreading the message uh, forcing governments to act and uh, the reason for the optimism is that uh, within the next uh, decade or so many of these uh, youth will be in leadership positions in in the government in bureaucracy in industries 
and uh, I think that that will facilitate uh, very uh, immediate and f uh, decisions uh, you know uh, that would have to be taken at a certain point of time maybe in the next decade or so when uh, uh, a, a few things like uh, you know taking out uh, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere uh, by technology would become uh, necessary and uh, because people who are who have been activists all their life are now will be in leadership positions they will be able to make that quick and uh, you know immediate decisions uh, to protect the areas that are needed to be protected for example you know uh, stopping all kinds of uh, exploitative activities activi uh, activities north of the arctic circle because i know there's a lot of uh, you know uh, resources there waiting to be exploited and countries are looking to you know um, drill there for oil and uh, all, uh, other resources but if we let that happen of course this is going to be uh, a catastrophic collapse and I also believe that uh, we will find out a way uh, to keep that methane out of the equation and how we do that uh, I know the technology is evolving it's there uh, taking out carbon dioxide is possible it just needs to be prioritized there needs to be more uh, uh, resources spent in R&D to uh, to you know streamline and make this uh, processes uh, more efficient and less costly so I uh, yeah I am very much optimistic that uh, we can uh, stop catastrophic climate change a pessimist would say that it's already too late and so you know I'm not um, educated enough yet to make those type of claims but our first guest said basically if we're going to curve this then you know we need to eliminate you know ac units which is never going to happen you know so when i when i talk to certain people you know extreme measures you know they suggest extreme measures have to be taken and so when i hear you say you know you're you know you're optimistic about the youth leadership you know that's still potentially you know 20 years away you look at a, a Greta a Greta Thornburg for example I mean she's a teenager um, so you know I, I do you know I'm optimistic based on my little knowledge of the situation I see electric cars I see solar panels taking off but what I'm hearing is that the damage has already been done that you know things that were done 15 to 20 years ago are now just surfacing so what happens 15 years from now based on what we're doing today and that's what I fear and so it, it's actually nice to have you on the podcast and have some optimism because every time we do this I always leave the show you know sad and just upset that you know that there's irreversible damage and so I'm glad to hear uh, you come on the show and speak to uh, positions that you're seeing of people that that understand, um, you know, the cause that we're having to the environment and uh, people that are taking initiative to um, turn that. And when you look at the technology, you know, I can't even fathom what it takes to draw certain molecules out of the air. Um, but that seems to be. Uh, a plan that we have to enact because that seems like a fast reversing solution, something that takes 
you know, a lot of intelligence to, you know, to come up with that. And, and, I, and that's something that I'm, I'm really interested in. And we probably can't get to it on this podcast, um, but I'm excited for um, that sort of technology to to take hold here. Are we see actually seeing that? Are we seeing um, that process taking place now where we're actually pulling CO2 out of the air? Yes, the technology is there. And uh, it's not just one uh, company. There are a whole bunch of companies in Europe and in America who are ready with the technology, perhaps uh, with a new president and uh, uh, your country getting back into the Paris Agreement. I hope these things will be, uh, you know, shown the urgency and given the resources that uh, are required. And uh, once again, we'll see uh, a maximization of efforts and collaboration. And especially in the post-COVID scenario, when uh, the countries in the world know that, you know, if they want to act, if they have to act, uh, they can motivate the people to act and uh, they can take the tough decision that's required. And if all of all the countries in the world actually uh, pause and think about what is lying Un with climate change, what are the dangers from uh, the exposure of new viruses uh, from uh, from the permafrost, uh, you know, emerging, uh, and you know the nightmare that uh, could unfold because of all this. Uh, so if they sit down and say no, we must act, and you know, uh, put their resources into these technologies. I think they can make it work within a couple of years and uh, of course uh, when the IPCC gave us like uh, you know 12 years uh, to contain warming to uh, about 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, of course they accounted for all that locked in warming from 15-20 years back that will still be there uh, but uh, this is not uh, you know this is the worst case scenario so I hope we'll never get there and uh, we will still have that window you know it may not be in 10 years but uh, we will have maybe 20-25 years to actually uh, make those changes that will uh, you know stop that catastrophic uh, collapse that uh, you know we need to avoid. Brian I just I just wanted to add real quick uh, the, the kind of technology Raj is talking about, it falls within the area of something called climate restoration. And, and, you know, there are companies in California and pretty much everywhere in the world that are already innovating. One of the ideas is to suck carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and convert it into cement. So the cement is really carbon negative. And, you know, there is something going on with methane emissions now as well to, to you know, industries that really go methane negative, even not like not like methane neutral, but methane negative. So, I mean, that's that's definitely something to look forward to. I actually interned with a company, uh, you know, this past summer where I helped them develop a program for for like you know working on establishing a carbon negative synthetic limestone and carbon negative cement plant in India it was a California company and they wanted to do something here so I mean we will definitely have them in the next couple of episodes uh, not the not the one that's like immediately after this but maybe another one that follows that but it's it's definitely one of the areas that's coming forward Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I just, I just wonder, you know, I, I know initiatives are in place, but I just wonder, 
you know, is it fast enough? Is it taking place right now? You know, that's, that's, it's good stuff to hear. I mean, I knew, I knew that there was companies out there. I'm just wondering how fast it is till it's actually making a difference. And uh, to add to that uh, positive note, uh, there is a global movement uh, to recognize, uh, you know, how uh, indigenous peoples are connected to nature and traditional ways of, uh, you know, restoring lands, a, a switch to regenerative agricultural practices, and, uh, um, you know, the transition to eating local and eating uh, plant-based diets. I think all of this uh, uh, reforestation, um, you know, planting of millions of trees, all of this positives add up as well it's not just the negatives which uh, you know uh, uh, take you down but uh, the positives add up as well so yeah there is so much of uh, you know reason to be hopeful and optimist makes sense i mean i, I think it's i i want to i want to remain optimistic you know i want to um i want to push uh that because i i feel like you know, we have to remain positive in order to achieve our goals. You know, I think sometimes when you just like uh, when you negatively attach um, a storyline to an initiative, it could damage it. And so I'm, you know, I'm, I, I, we want to remain positive. I mean, we are putting solar panels on, you know, 50 roofs, or 50, you know, 50 roofs a year in, in the city. So, you know, we want to remain positive. We want to push people to, you know, to convert. And so, you know, I, I thank you, Raj, for, you know, coming on this show, but I want to give you the opportunity to, to kind of plug yourself, you know, is, is there a place where people can follow you on social media or some initiatives that you've started or contributed to? Uh, where can we follow along with your work? Uh, yeah, uh, so I, I am with the Climate Reality Project, and uh, but you can always follow me on uh, Twitter or at Rituraj Fukan. Uh, That's my handles on Twitter, on Instagram, on LinkedIn. So uh, yeah, and uh, my group is Green Guard Nature Organization, but uh, that's uh, something that uh, uh, we work on human wildlife conflicts uh, here in Assam. And there is also one called Walk for Water, where we work with the water stress communities around uh, the country. And by the way, I just want to add one more thing regarding, uh, you know, uh, optimism and the good things that are coming. There are also economic opportunities uh, arriving because of uh, this transition. Uh, I think even in the U.S. now, the highest number of uh, jobs, you know, increasing are. Uh, our solar panel technicians and then uh, followed by wind technicians so uh, so with this new technology new transition that uh, is taking place new jobs are also emerging well thank you Raj for joining us today uh, to our guests stay tuned for our next episode uh, and make sure that you subscribe to our podcast thank you everyone uh, for listening to this session thank you very much Yeah, yeah, yeah.
अफसोस नहीं जो तेरे लिए सौ दर्द सहे महफूज रहे तेरी आन सदा चाहे जान मेरी ये रहे ना रहे भंगड़ा पा न सका आबाद रहे वो गांव मेरा जहां लौट के वापस जा न सका तेरी मिट्टी 